0: We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. So, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to follow the uh, what we normally do at Remedy, and that is, after I read, I'll say, This is the Word of the Lord. And we'll all respond by saying, thanks be to God. And that really means two things. It means, first of all, that we're thankful to God for His Word. And second, it means that we have a desire to obey and follow God's Word. So, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father God, as we approach your word, we are so thankful that not only are you there, but you're not silent, but you have spoken to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we delve into your word today, that you will stir our affections for you. And, Father, that... Through your word, we will leave here better equipped to serve you and win Rock Hill for you. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a few years ago, I was reading this very passage that we just got through reading. And I was going through a difficult time. I was actually unemployed at the time wondering what God was up to, feeling sorry for myself. I was actually wallowing in my own self-pity. But as I read this passage, my problems seemed a whole lot less important to me. Soon, I could hardly see the page through my tears as I remembered my position in Christ God used this very passage to remind me of the wonder of salvation and to convict me of the sin of my coldness toward Him. So, the letter to the Ephesians wasn't written because there were divisions or sin in the church, like 1 Corinthians, or to address false teachers who had infiltrated the church, like the letter to the Galatians. In fact, there's really no particular problem at all addressed in this letter. So, why did Paul write the letter to the Ephesians? And why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write this and preserve it in the canon of Scripture? So, perhaps one of the reasons it is to help us understand that the church is really important to God. It's for us to be in awe of his eternal plan and how he has blessed us to fill us with wonder at our salvation. I believe this passage is for Remedy Church. I'm not aware of major sin in our midst or divisions or doctrinal heresy, but we live in a fallen world and we need to be reminded day in and day out of the gospel. We should be in wonder and awe that he saved us. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Take a look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So church, what spiritual blessing has God withheld from us? 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just as God has given us scripture for every good work, so God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Notice that it says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The central focus of the gospel is not on material blessings. It's just not big enough. C.S. Lewis put it this way, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul tells us in verse 3 that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. He then takes the next 11 verses telling us what those blessings are. Verses 3 to 14 are one continuous sentence in the original Greek. Paul never takes a breath. It just keeps pouring out. As we look at this passage, we'll see how our spiritual blessings are based on each person, the work of each person of the Trinity. We'll see how God the Father chose us in verses 3 to 6. How God the Son paid the price for us in verses 7 through 12. And how God the Holy Spirit keeps our salvation safe. In verses 13 and 14. So first, let's look at how God the Father chose us in Christ. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. There's a past, present, and future aspect to salvation. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Our salvation began in eternity past. Before we existed, before the creation of the world, God purposed to put us and Christ together. He purposed in love that we would become his sons and daughters. This arose from his unmerited favor. The proper response to election is awe and wonder at God's love for us. It removes all boasting. It spurs us on to holiness. Here are three objections to election that I've personally heard. The first objection is, that's not what Baptists believe. Well, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 of the Southern Baptist Convention says, Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So all analogies break down at some point, and this analogy is certainly imperfect. But the analogy is of a lion. Can a lion eat straw? Well, yes. Forget about digesting it, but a lion can physically reach down and eat straw. But a lion will never do that because it's not in its nature and in the same way, we will never come to Christ unless God first does a work of regeneration in our hearts. Another objection to election is, well, that's not fair. Paul addresses that exact question in Romans 9. He talks about God choosing Jacob, but not Esau, before they were born, and about hardening God's heart or Pharaoh's heart. Romans 9, 19-21 says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In a nutshell, saying, God is sovereign. I once had a woman come up to me and say, Well, election can't be true because the Bible says that God wants everyone to be saved. And indeed, 1 Timothy two four says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God invites and commands every person to repent and come to Christ for salvation. But because everyone is not saved both Arminian and Reformed views would say that God wills something more than He wills the salvation of all people. Grudem says, Reformed theologians say that God deems His own glory more important than saving everyone, and that according to Romans 9, God's glory is also furthered by the fact that some are not saved. Arminian theologians also say that something else is more important to God than the salvation of all people. Namely, the preservation of man's free will. So, in a reformed system, God's highest value is his own glory. And in an Arminian system, God's highest value is the free will of man. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, we see that God chose us from eternity past. He chose us in love and adopted us according to the purpose of his will, not man's will to the praise of His glorious grace. So God the Father chose us. Let's look now at how God the Son paid the price for us. Ephesians 1, verse 7, "...in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will." Well, according to this passage, first, through redemption. Second, by revealing God's plan. And third, through our inheritance. First, God the Son blesses us by redeeming us. Redemption means that a price was paid to buy us back. It denotes liberation from bondage or imprisonment. Romans 6 says that we were slaves to sin. Christ redeemed us by his blood on the cross. The book of Colossians is sometimes called the parallel book to Ephesians. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ's redemption of us was not cheap. Verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Do you ever doubt God's love for you? I know I sometimes struggle with that. But if you find yourself feeling that way, think of the cross, the central point of human history. God demonstrated for all time and eternity His love for us. His son, Son hung on that tree to pay our debt. Verse 7 says, Christ's redemption accomplished forgiveness. Horatio Spadford got it right in his hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. His third stanza says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord of oh, my soul. How does God the Son bless us? First, as we saw through redemption. Second, God the Son blesses us by revealing God's plan. Picking up on verse 8, in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is the mystery of his will? Well, verse 10 tells us to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. Since the fall of man in the garden, God has been about the work of restoring his creation. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that all creation longs for the restoration and for our glorification. John Stott says in Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul seems to be referring again to that cosmic renewal, that regeneration of the universe, that liberation of the groaning creation of which he has already written to the Romans. Another commentator puts it this way. History is going somewhere. By God's grace, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. He has revealed his eternal plan to us, and that plan centers on the Redeemer. What is his plan? It is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. So how does God the Son bless us? First, through redemption. Second, by revealing God's plan. Third, God the Son blesses us through our inheritance. Verse 10 says, In him we have received an inheritance. Some commentators say that instead of saying we have received an inheritance, a better translation may be that we were made to be God's heritage or inheritance. Speaking of the two ways to translate this passage, Tony Morita says, Both are great options. We are God's possession, and through Christ we have received a glorious inheritance. C.S. Lewis wrote a fiction series called The Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote it on two levels so that parents could read it to their children. To a child, it's a story about some children that have adventures in a fantasy world where animals talk, and they meet Aslan, a lion. To the adults, Aslan is an allegory of Christ. At the end of all of their experiences, C.S. Lewis wrote, "...and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion." But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1, of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. 1 Corinthians two nine says, But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The more we grow in him, the more we can't wait to see him. We long for that day. We will love His appearing. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. In looking at the blessings of election from the Trinity, we see how God the Father chose us, how God the Son paid the price for us. Jesus redeemed us. He revealed God's plan to us. He provides an inheritance for us. Now let's look at how God the Holy Spirit keeps us safe. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God, the Holy Spirit, blesses us by keeping us safe. Verse 13 says that at conversion we were sealed. Now, if you put wax, a seal wax, on a letter or a document, it shows that it's authentic. Our seal is none other than the God, the Holy Spirit himself. He lives inside us to show that we belong to Him. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In Ephesians 1, verse 14, we see that God, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee that we will receive the inheritance promised to us. It's the first installment of many future payments. So think of it as like you're being given a new car but someone hands you the keys first. Or think of it as an appetizer to an amazing multi-course dinner that goes on forever. Living the Christian life in a fallen world, we are given partial foretaste of the blessings that will be ours when Christ returns. There's an already and not yet aspect to his kingdom. We already possess some of the blessings of those kingdoms of the kingdom, but those blessings are not yet fully ours. Klein Snodgrass says, Christians are people who live in the present, founded on the past and pulled by the future. Moreover, the future is not merely out there, it's already experienced. The ultimate promises of God are already being enjoyed in the present, even though their completion is still to come. This already, not yet, understanding of time must dominate Christian living. The Holy Spirit guarantees what is still future, but we're already enjoying many of the blessings that we will see in eternity. Ephesians 1, 3-14 is an incredible passage. We're in awe of how God has blessed us, how God the Father chose us, God the Son paid the price for us, God the Holy Spirit protects us. But let's turn our thoughts now to how to apply this passage to our Christian walk. The book of Ephesians was written around 62 AD. The book of Revelation was written about 33 years later. In Revelation, the Apostle John writes about... The church at Ephesus it says, Well they're known for their good works, they have good doctrine, but picking up in Revelation chapter two, verse four, it says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not I will come to you inn- and remove your landstand from its place unless you repent. Sadly, only 33 years after Paul wrote to the Ephesians, they had lost the wonder of their salvation. They had left their first love. Imagine, if you will, the Apostle John pointing back to the letter that Paul had written and giving the Ephesians these four pieces of advice. Rekindle the wonder of your salvation through worship, through holiness, By remembering what God has done for you, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say rekindle the wonder of our salvation, here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about working ourselves into an emotional state that quickly fades away. On the other hand, I'm not talking about mere intellectual assent that has no bearing on our life. What I do mean is that we should be deeply rooted in God's word. We need to understand the truths of God in a way that impacts both our behavior and our emotions. It's about seeing reality regardless of what our culture tells us. It's about being in awe of God's love for us, the price that he paid for us, and the inheritance that he has given us. How do we rekindle the wonder of our salvation? Number one, through worship. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins by praising God. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he isn't expressing a wish. He's not saying, God, I hope you have a good day. He's saying, this is who God is. He is praising and worshiping God. The first way for us to rekindle the wonder of our salvation is through worship. When we worship, we're we're thinking of someone outside of ourselves. And if, if we aren't worshiping God, we are worshiping God someone or something else because we were created for worship. Worship reaches deep inside our understanding of ourselves as creatures and God as creators. Worship does something to our perspective. It helps us see past our circumstances. It helps us to focus on who God is and what he's done for us. Sometimes we use the word worship in a very narrow sense to talk about the singing or the the music before or after a Sunday sermon. But worship is not just singing, although it can certainly include that. Worship is both an attitude and an act. So could something like sacrificial giving to your local church be considered worship? It could be. Worship is not just the act, but the attitude of the heart. Many times we fail to live in awe of the gospel because we see God as not relevant. Worship gives us the opportunity to tell the truth about ourselves and about God. It reminds us of reality. So, practically, how do we rekindle the wonder of our salvation through worship? There's a lot of ways, but let's talk about three. The first and most obvious is to worship God with His people. Attend church. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Second, Worship God by giving sacrificially of yourself and your resources to God's family. The offering is part of our worship, just like singing. Give God your money, your time, and your talents. Third, read the Bible. There are many passages of scripture that I'll be reading and I'll just stop and thank God for what he's done for us. Or I'll read and I'll reflect on who he is, his majesty, his his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his holiness, his goodness. Like the Apostle Paul, when we really begin to understand that God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, our response should be worship. How do we rekindle the wonder of our salvation? First, through worship. Second, through holiness. In Ephesians 1, verse 4 Paul tells us why God chose us from eternity past. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Now, there are two aspects we need to understand about holiness. The first is that we are positionally holy before God. This is called justification. It's a legal declaration. Romans 8 asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God declares us to be just in His sight because He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Justification comes to us entirely by God's grace. We're the beneficiaries. The second truth is that God the Father chose us in Christ so that we can become more and more like Christ. This process is called sanctification. Unlike justification... We participate actively with God in the process of our sanctification. We have the responsibility to pursue holiness. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us to strive for holiness in Hebrews twelve fourteen. Sanctification begins at regeneration and continues throughout the Christian's life. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's how we are not just declared righteous, but through the work of God's Spirit, are really becoming righteous. This process is happening in the life of every true believer. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Every true believer is becoming more like Jesus. The evidence that you are holy, justification, is that you are becoming holy, sanctification. So Let me say that again. The evidence that you are holy, justification, is that you are becoming holy, sanctification. John Piper puts it this way. The power by which you daily strive to overcome the imperfections in your life is the confidence that you are already perfect. Don't get these two switched around. Some people think, God demands perfection, I've got to become perfect, then God will look at me and think, oh, he's doing pretty good, we'll count him to be perfect. It's just the opposite. We believe in Christ and what he did on the cross, and by faith God unites us to Christ and his perfection is counted as ours. So we have been perfected, and the evidence that we stand perfected in Christ is that we hate our sins, and we daily strive by faith to overcome our imperfections. So do you see how justification and sanctification work together in the believer's life? Knowing that we're holy encourages us as we strive for holiness. Knowing that we're justified encourages us as we strive for sanctification. As justification takes hold in our hearts and our minds, we grow in sanctification. As we become more like Jesus, the wonder of our salvation grows. As we understand more about the depth of our depravity, we're more amazed at His grace. We're humbled by election, awed by adoption, and praise Him for His grace. So practically, how do you rekindle the wonder of salvation through holiness? Again, many applications, but let's talk about three. Number one, pray. Ask God's help to help walk in holiness, to be blameless before him. Take your sin, your temptations, and struggles to him who has made you holy and is making you holy. Number two, be accountable Find one or two believers that you can be transparent with about your sin and hold each other accountable. Number three, read the Bible. You might notice a pattern emerging here. As we read scripture, we understand more fully the meaning of justification that encourages us to be holy in all our behavior. Through sanctification, we desire more of God's word that helps us grow deeper in our understanding of justification. We have an upward spiral of growth in the Christian life. Have you ever thought about the hunger for God's word is the opposite of physical hunger? You know, if you eat a big meal, you're done with food, at least for a while. You want some more? It's your favorite. Oh, no, not right now. But with God's word, it's the opposite. The more you eat, the more you want. But what happens if you aren't in God's word on a regular basis? It becomes easier and easier to put it off. Don't let that happen to you. How do we rekindle the wonder of our salvation? First, through worship. Second, through holiness. Third, by remembering. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He was there during his second missionary journey, and he spent nearly three and a half years in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. It's very likely that the Ephesians had heard this before. But here Paul is reminding them again. Over and over again, we see in Scripture the theme of God telling his people to remember. It was in the law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Deuteronomy 5.15. We see it in the wisdom literature. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Over and over again the prophets said it. Remember the law of my, Moses, of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. Malachi 4.4 4. Our Lord himself instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22.19 We need to remember the gospel every day. We live in a fallen world. It's so easy to be caught up in the temporal that we forget the eternal. Now, there are many practical ways to rekindle the wonder of our salvation by remembering. Here are three applications. Number one, attend church and listen to the preaching of the Word. I love the verse-by-verse exegetical teaching here at Remedy. It rekindles in me the wonder of our salvation. If you're a baptized believer, participate in the Lord's Supper. Some churches do it once a quarter or once a month. There's nothing prescribed in Scripture, but I love hear it, how we do it at Remedy once a week. Number three, read the Bible. Have you noticed I keep saying that? The creator and sustainer of all life has spoken to us. Remember what he has done by reading his word. How do we rekindle the wonder of our salvation? Number one, through worship. Number two, through holiness. Number three, by remembering. The final point is through the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we saw how we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, showing the authenticity of our salvation. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is working to preserve our union with Christ. For believers, being in Christ is everything. We see it through all 12 verses that we've been looking at today. We're blessed in Christ, verse 3. We're chosen in Christ, verse 4. We're adopted through Christ, verse 5. We're blessed with grace in Christ, verse 6. We are redeemed by Christ, verses 7 and 8. We're united in Christ, verses 9 and 10. We have an inheritance in Christ, verse 11. Our hope is in Christ, verse 12. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believe in Christ, verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 refers to the promised Holy Spirit. Christ himself promised to send us the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Christ says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Christ spent, sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. So let's talk about practical application. God the Holy Spirit speaks to us number one, through His Word, number two, as we seek Him in prayer, and number three, through God's people. So, there, these are really the basics of the Christian life, of the Christian walk. So, it's... No coincidence that these things keep popping up multiple times, right? Over and over again. Read the Bible, pray, attend church. God uses all of these to rekindle in us the wonder of our salvation. At the beginning, I mentioned a time when I was up early reading this very passage. I was unemployed at the time, wondering what God was up to, wallowing in my own self-pity. But as I read, my problems seemed a whole lot less important. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Don't let your present circumstances keep you from seeing the reality of God's blessings to us. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Be in awe of your salvation. If you find yourself with dry eyes and a cold heart, Rekindle the wonder through worship, through holiness, by remembering that God has done mighty things for us and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, what a tremendous passage this is. We thank you, Father, for the blessings that you have given us. Father, I pray that you would help us as we... Take what we have learned today and apply it to our lives that we would leave from here and go forth and and be your servants to a world that needs you so desperately. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.